Good day. Thank you for deciding to spend part of your Friday with us. I'm Sharon Pearson. I'm president of Salem City Club. Today's program is a good example of City Club delivering on its mission to keep our community informed on all issues affecting us. In April and May, we will present three more such programs. On April 16th, Willamette River Keepers will take us on a deep dive into the river. On April 30th, Oregon Secretary of State Shamia Fagan will discuss several issues, keeping her office busy. And on May 14th, we will conclude our season with a panel of journalists who will give us an overview of, of what has happened in this year's legislative session. We hope you'll sign up and join us. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. Thank you to our members and our friends who continue to support Salem City Club through membership and donations. The board and the program committee are very grateful for the ongoing help. Thank you. In addition, City Club would not be able to present programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. KMUZ Community Radio, Lugene Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. And now, here is today's program lead, Cindy Condon, who will introduce our speaker. Hello, Cindy. Hello, Sharon, and thank you. And thanks to everyone for joining us today for the program, The Secrets in the Soil. Spring has sprung and we begin to venture, as we begin to venture out of our isolation, getting vaccinated and wearing masks, it's beautiful to see the spring flowers blooming and the agricultural fields greening up. And many of us are itching to get those seeds we have into the ground and then await the promise of what's to come. While we've been isolated for so long, the insects, animals, and microorganisms have been leading their very full lives in the ground upon which we walk and the soil which nourishes us in so many ways. We often overlook the soil, the life it supports and maintains, and the fuller role it plays in our lives. More and more research is unlocking the secrets of the soil, which are so important to many of the issues society is confronting today. Soil has an important role to play as we address climate change, sustainable agriculture, food supply, both locally, regionally, well, and globally too, water management, and the list goes on. I am pleased to welcome Linda Brewer, certified soil scientist with the Department of Horticulture at Oregon State University and the OSU extension, Ask the Expert Resource for all things soil, soil fertility and compost. She is the perfect speaker to bring, bring us up to date on the science of ensuring good soils at home, on the farm, and for the environment. Welcome, Linda. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks for your kind introduction. <clears throat> um, I'm gonna share my screen so that uh, you can see my slides. Perfect. Great. Now, if I can just get into slideshow mode, we'll be ready to go. Thanks for your patience. Um, if there's one thing a year of working from home has taught me, it's that you have to send old people to a special school if you're going to get them to do Zoom and all the things that go with it. So um, I'd like to my, my presentation today is a little bit in two parts. One is more about what's going on at the national and regional level with organizations um, about soil and soil research. And then the other part is um, looking at some principles of soil health um, and looking at those from a farm scale, but also from um, a home garden scale. So. Soil isn't just dirt anymore. Um, 
I'm something of a late bloomer, so um, it's only in the last 20 years that I've had this certification in soil science. Um, and when I was a graduate student 20, 25 years ago, we really thought about and talked about soil as a, a, a chemical matrix that plant roots were stuck in. Um, I'd say in the last eight to 10 years, that has changed to um, looking at soils from a biologist's point of view, so that soils are a, um, a community-filled ecosystem and looking at and thinking about how those um, biological actors contribute to the, the function of soils. I want to point out before I go on that Oregon State is the state's land grant and because of that status, every state has one. Because of that status, um, Oregon State is the recipient of some specific um, federal funding streams and Oregon State provides the extension service. So um, as, a, as research faculty at Oregon State, I'm involved very much with federal grant programs. Um, the USDA is the federal agency that um, oversees federal, federal grants for agricultural research. There are many um, federal grant programs within the USDA and then of course other agencies, Department of Energy, um, Health, oh dear, I'm going to blow it now. There are many federal agencies in addition to the USDA that support um, grant programs. The sustain Sustainable Agricultural Systems program is one of those USDA um, grant programs. I think about grant programs a lot because my, for the last 20 plus years, my salary has been, we call soft money, always on, um, always on grant money. And a lot of what I do is to assist the tenure track fac or the tenured faculty in um, submitting and then managing federal grants. So I kind of created a niche skill here in federal grant management. By 2050, it's estimated that the global population will be about 50 billion. And the emphasis of this sustainable agricultural systems program is to transform the US food and agricultural systems so that productivity is increased, environmental footprint is decreased. Um, there's a lot of effort through this program to breed crops that will, that will function well um, as the climate changes. So what we're looking forward to at our latitude is, um, reduced moisture and increased heat. Um, I've heard predictions that by about 2070 or 2090, uh, Corvallis will be more like Davis, California. So that's that would be a significant change. All this stuff is based on models. So um, nobody's got a crystal ball that's saying what it is. Um, the idea of all of these federal grant programs that I'm involved in is that there is concern for social, economic, and also environmental stability. So um, there are many things we could do to support the environment, but it might cost the livelihoods of um, farmers and ranchers, for example. Um, the size of this, so we're looking for a balance always among these three types of um, sustainability or impacts, social, economic, and environmental. Um, the program hopes to distribute $150 million for fiscal year 2021. 
I'm part of a, a program that was submitted last week, um, which talks, uh, seeks to stabilize um, forage and livestock systems with the goal of improving soil health. So we'll see how that goes. Hmm. Great. Another important federal partner for the land grants is the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service. Um, it's appeared under many names. Um, it got its start during the Dust Bowl days. Um, the Natural Resource Conservation Service provides a lot of on-farm support and uh, partners with farmers and uh, land-grant researchers for applied research on farm activities. They're very much interested in soil biology and that goes hand in hand with soil health, soil health assessment. How do we, how do we know that soil health is improving or degrading? That's what I mean when I talk about soil health assessment. Um, soil health management, keeping soil health on the right track. Um, a newer player on the scene is the Soil Health Institute. I'd say they've probably uh, become active in the last five to eight years. This is a nonprofit research institution, which is actually defining what the measures of soil health are. So. For about the last 10 or 15 years, soil scientists and um, the Soil Science Society of America, for example, have sort of argued about what is soil health? How do we define it? How do we measure it? So the, the mission of the Soil Health Institute is to define what that is and conduct research to um, to create the protocols uh, for, for measuring soil health. They are involved in a lot of um, education and training. Um, they too are concerned about social, economic, and environmental sustainability. And importantly, and I think impactfully, they're interested in, in policy and defining or contributing to agricultural policy for social, economic, and environmental sustainability and for soil health. Um, the last example, you know, there are so many examples. These are just some that I've been involved with since about the first of the year. Um, the Western Cover Crops Council is a membership organization of farmers and researchers who collaborate in applied on-farm um, research projects. Uh, their aim is to enhance grower and researcher collaboration and communication. And um, this winter they provided a, or hosted a, a webinar series from the ground up, which featured um, farmers as the speaker, farmers who um, experiment with crops, cover crops, to improve um, soil health and soil function on their farms. So these are just a few, you know, if you, if you poked every um, agricultural faculty member at Oregon State, you'd, you'd get a whole different suite of organizations and activities that have been going on lately. Um, I wanna shift over, oh, well, okay, yes. I do wanna shift over now to soils, what they are, and then um, really dig into the principles of soil health. Basically, after the sun, it's the soil that sustains life on earth. Soils are very important in water filtering and water regulation. So soils both store water and release it. Um, that's part of what I mean by water regulation. Soils are a carbon sink. 
soils work with plants to um, sequester carbon. Soils, interestingly, are the original source of antibiotics. Soils are very involved in nutrient cycling. Um, and along with that comes um, organic matter decomposition and um, plant supporting plant life. Soils support structures, buildings, roads, those kinds of things. That's a, for us, that's a very important um, function of soils. And finally, soils, soils receive everything we go throw away. Um, it's always, I think it's important to remember, my interest is in um, waste management, um, organic waste decomposition. And so I always wanna impress on audiences that everything we go away, throw away, everything we throw away will either end up in the soil or it'll end up in the water. So for me, that's an important point. Okay, um, through all of these uh, uh, organizations, there have been developed some principles to promote soil health. And I'm gonna demonstrate these or illustrate these rather on a farm scale, but also on a garden scale. So let's take a look at these. The first, um, the first principle of soil health is to diversify the crop. Um, this is a photo, believe it or not, of um, a cornfield in the Midwest. I would say that a lot of the efforts for um, soil health over the last probably 20 years have been led by growers in the Midwest who have been in this continuous uh, corn-soybean rotation for many decades. Um, the younger generation has come in. They are inheriting maybe fourth or fifth generation family farms. And they're looking at what could be done to improve the soil health. So what we're looking at here is, this is corn, this is corn, here's corn, these long skinny leaves, corn, which is the main crop, but it's been planted into the stubble of some kind of small grain, maybe wheat, rye, barley, oats, something like that. And then we see a lot of um, other cover crops, this is some kind of cabbage family. This looks like buckwheat to me, just many things. This is a highly diversified crop. Um, well, I had a thought there and it just slid out of my head. Well, I'm just gonna go on and I'll come back to diversify. Ah, yes, good. So by diversifying the crop, this farmer is gonna have a variety of plant architectures above the ground, but also below the ground. And it turns out that those diverse architectures are really important for insects, uh, insects, arthropods, worms, um, the, the um, players that live in the plants above the ground and also in their roots below the ground. Another principle, an important principle of um, soil health is um, to keep a living root in the soil for as long as possible throughout the year. And here, um, I, have, I, I wanna talk about two things here. First, I wanna direct your attention to the photo on the right. This shows the um, expansion of a plant root. So there are several layers here. And this outermost layer, the white layer, is sloughing off as it's intended to do. And it's estimated that as much as 20% of the carbon fixed by a plant 
So here's the job of plants. They hold their leaves out in the sunshine. They take in carbon dioxide. They make sugars through the process of photosynthesis, and then they release oxygen. It's, it's because of photosynthesis and um, plants that can photosynthesize that we have an oxygen-based uh, atmosphere on Earth at this time. So here, this plant root is sloughing off these cells. And what will happen is that um, soil microbiology, bacteria, and fungi, generally speaking beneficial, will be drawn to this root area. Um, and so ab about 20% of all the carbon that the plant photosynthesizes will be um, exuded into the soil. Those soil microbiology folks will uh, break those down, actually make the plant nutrients available to this same root again, it will take them up. So uh, this, this process, this short-term process uh, cycles about every 10 days. So that is living roots in the soil, keeping the soil biology fed and active. That's why we wanna keep living roots in the soil for as long as we can. Now over here, this is a photo on the left of uh, my vegetable garden taken on Christmas day, I think in 2019. Um, the main crop is garlic. In the Willamette Valley, we expect to plant garlic in July or August. Well, July through let's say early October and then harvest sometime in July or August the following year. So it's it's living roots in the ground for almost a year. But I also have, I'm not really sure what this is. This is some kind of weedy thing. Here I've got mache or corn salad. I believe this right here is a calendula. Here are some parsleys coming up. Here's a bitter crest. So I have all kinds of living roots in the soil and a highly diverse, um, highly diverse architecture, both above the ground and below the ground. So that's just one example of um, that, that principle, putting that principle into practice. Another principle is to um, cover the soil surface. This is a photo of cabbages growing. Um, they are, the surface here is covered with um, straw or some kind of mulch. But if we go back to that farmer's field here, under diversifying the crop, we've actually had the canopy of all of these diverse crops close over so that the soil is protected from the direct rays of the sunlight. Um, these covers, whether they're growing or here where we've got a mulch, they help hold water in the soil. They help keep the soil cool and they protect the soil from the um, action of um, sunlight. So in the, um, in the tropics, it's pretty common to see soils that have almost no soil organic matter stored in them because of the action of the sun beating down on them. So keeping the soil surface covered, that's a good thing. Here's an example from my own garden of a couple of kinds of um, covers. One is just this um, mulch layer that I... Um, renew periodically. Um, as you come south in the Willamette Valley, you get more and more clay content in your soil. This is for geologic reasons. And so where I am in Corvallis, we have about 65% clay. Um, if I did not keep this soil covered, because we are we try to have, for example, greens, onions, 
parsley, those kinds of things all year long, we'd probably be walking in about a quarter inch of water in the winter time when we tried to um, go out and get something out of the garden. Over here in the garden bed itself, um, you can see a couple of things. The main crop here is tomatoes and the tomatoes tend to, uh, their canopy tends to close over and ex exclude a lot of um, sunlight. So that's really helpful because it lets me grow things like lettuce even in the hotter parts of the year. Lettuce is gonna be pretty low. Again, I've got that diverse architecture. Um, the roots of lettuces are gonna be pretty distinct from um, tomatoes. But also here at the end, where at the south end of this raised garden bed, I've got um, basil growing. So um, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm illustrating a lot of things here. One is to keep the soil surface covered. Another is to um, protect from sunlight. I also have a lot of um, kind of rubbishy compost. I make a lot of compost. Right now I have, um, I think seven or eight compost piles going in my backyard under three different techniques. Um, I make a lot of compost and I apply a lot of compost just to the surface. So you can see um, sticks and twigs, this might be a chicken bone here, that aren't quite broken down. So I have a lot of um, cover. Okay, I am keeping my eye on the time and I am moving right along. Um, another principle of soil health is to include animals, birds, and insects in the soil system. So my photo here is a pretty beautiful, colorful photo of beetles. I'm not sure all of, I'm, well, I'm pretty sure most of these beetles would not be native to the Willamette Valley. And probably many of them are not beneficial, but some are. Um, animals can be included. Um, for me, including animals would be um, hauling in manure. I'm not much of a chicken fan because they, uh, well, they're hard to control, frankly. So um, we, we have done chickens um, and of course their manure is also useful. They are voracious eaters of weeds and so that's very helpful. Birds um, feed on insects, both beneficial and harmful insects. Insects, if we didn't have insects, arthropods, and worms, we would be up to our hubs in organic detritus, leaves, grass clippings, sticks, just all kinds of stuff. One of the most important things that insects and worms do is, and ants, ants are the major player in this, they pull organic waste down below the surface of the soil. So include them as you can. Um, optimize sunlight collection. So that's photosynthesis because that sequesters carbon, that stores carbon in the soil rather than in the sunlight. When plants take in that carbon dioxide, that's carbon that they're taking out of the atmosphere. But don't let it burn up your soil. <clears throat> and optimize carbon cycling. So um, as I mentioned, you know, the soil through photosynthesis, the soil becomes a repository for soil carbon. Some of that soil carbon gets cycled really quickly, just maybe in 10 days with those um, roots, plant roots. Some get stored in the soil for many decades. Um, but frankly, it's the ocean that is the, um, is the, the best that, that, that um, sequesters the most carbon, just because the soil, not the soil, the air and the water are in direct contact there. And through a chemical interaction, the, the ocean is just able to take up um, carbon. 
Whereas in the soil, we have a, uh, a biological process going on that just takes more time. Okay, uh, just a few more things. I wanna point out a, a couple of things. Um, I am not opposed to tillage. If you have a successful garden through tillage, go for it. I'm not telling you not to do that. I will say that when we till, whether it's on the scale of um, commercial farming or just with my little mantis backyard tiller, we're releasing carbon that's been stored into the soil off into the atmosphere. If you put a, um, Um, if you put some kind of equipment that can detect carbon dioxide into a field after it's been tilled in this way, you'll see a boost in um, carbon dioxide. So agriculture is a disturbance management activity. We can't feed 50 billion people. We can't live all together in big cities and bring food in from elsewhere without disturbing the soil. What we wanna do is manage that disturbance. Um, mechanical and chemical disturbances weaken soil structure. So this looks like mm, perhaps a clay soil based on the cracking, it's starting to dry out. It got heavy traffic while it was too wet. This, these white crusts we see here along the surface are chemicals, you know, probably um, nitrogen, sulfur, chemicals that were added intentionally. But um, I'd say the number one chemical that can weaken soil structure is sodium. That, that's been understood mm, since the time of the ancient Greeks. People used to come in and um, kill off all the men, steal all the women, and then plow salt into the soil of their enemies so that the enemy couldn't have a crop for decades. So it's important to be thoughtful about how we fertilize, um, how we fertilize soils and, and to um, work within the principles of soil health, to, to work with soil biology, to um, fertilized soils. So lots of, lots of composting, for example. Mechanical and chemical disturbances reduce water infiltration because they break up the pore structures that allow water to enter the soil. Oh, now here's another slide that I lifted from a young Midwestern farmer. This is the same soil. The left handful is from the other side of the fence from the right handful. The left handful has been managed under principles of um, soil health, you know, a diversified crop, keeping a living root in the soil, um, minimizing mechanical and chemical disturbances. That's what we've got on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, the neighbor has been, um, managing his soil in a traditional soil in a traditional soybean and corn rotation for many decades and hasn't introduced these new principles. So what we're looking at in this right hand is the color of the soil matrix. What we're looking at in the left hand is the soil matrix covered by and coated with um, soil organic carbon. And we see a lot of rubbishy things that haven't broken down yet in the soil. So there's a real dramatic difference. Um, you'll know this if you've ever dug up more, more garden at one time than you can actually manage. Digging increases weeds. So um, I've learned to tolerate weeds and you saw that in my example from the December, the Christmas day photo. Uh, a lot of what you saw there are weeds and I'm out there pulling weeds throughout the year, but 
I'm, I'm okay with it. If you're going to compost, if you're going to add an inch of compost every year to your raised bed, you're going to have some weeds. I'm emotionally prepared for it. So now I just want to step aside. I mentioned that um, the further south you go in the Willamette Valley, the higher the clay content. I'm at about 65%. I could imagine that in, um, unless you're down on Mission Flats or on the Willamette uh, River bottom, I could imagine that you might have a fair amount of clay in your um, Salem soil. So I want to talk a little bit about clay soils and then I will be through. This is one kind of soil. This is um, a photo from my front yard taken in early September. Um, there are many kinds of clay soils. I happen to have a kind called the vertisols or the self-mixing clays. And so this um, soil cracks open for reasons of its chemistry and mineralogy. And organic matter, we see a lot of leaves here and some little sticks and things. They just fall right in there. When it starts raining, those cracks close up and the organic matter is buried at depth. Like diamonds, this is really true. Like diamonds, clay soils are forever. I have said in my life, and I've talked to many gardeners, this is the year I'm gonna fix that clay. And we can, we can work to mollify clay, but we can't really make it go away. And I'm gonna start with the diamond example. A diamond is a mineral that is defined by the presence of these carbon atoms, 90 degree angles, and a defined distance between the carbon atoms. So it's the atoms that are present, the angle between them and the uh, distance between them that is what defines a diamond. Over here on the right, we're looking at one type of clay mineral, but it's the same basic story. Uh, it's defined by these oxygen atoms and a silicon stuck in the middle. It's defined by these um, 60 degree angles and it's defined by that length between the oxygens. So I can do a lot of things to make my clay soil easier to work with, but in the end, it is still a clay soil. Um, <clears throat> clays, I believe um, that this is my last content slide, Cindy. So this is, this shows the Andes, but this is the same geology as we have going on under the Cascades. So let's pretend we're right out here. This is the Juan de Fuca plate right off the Oregon coast, and it is subducting under the North American plate, okay? And so as this content uh, goes deeper and deeper under the North American plate. The heat and pressure cause everything that got carried under here, causes it all to melt into lava. And so on the Altiplano of um, the Pacific coast of South America, they have volcanoes. Um, we have all, our volcanoes are the Cascade Range. So Erosion is going to carry these clay minerals down to the ocean. It takes a long time, but it's going to settle into the trench and eventually it's going to get dragged through the Cascadia Trench under the North American plate and turn into lava. This is the way you get rid of clay soils. All those atoms that are um, make up the minerals, get dragged down, disassociated, and come out as new minerals through volcanic activity. So sorry if this was the year you were going to get rid of your clay soils. I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, 
I would like to point out that Oregon State has a widget, Ask an Expert. And if you just Google Oregon State Ask an Expert, you can ask anything, child care, home energy. If your question has something about soil, compost, manure, related topics like that, you get me. Miss Cindy, I'm gonna give it up to you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Linda, for that great presentation. Something tells me you've gotten a lot of questions from maybe the Salem area about clay soils right. and what, what to do with them. So, um, so thank you. And so now we're gonna open up uh, to questions from, um, from our audience. And just, I wanna go through a quick review for asking questions. All registered attendees logged in on a computer, pad, or other video device have a raise hand icon or button on your screen. If you have a question to ask of Linda, please click on the button to raise your hand. People will be called on as time permits. Your microphone will be activated when called on, but you must click on your microphone icon on your screen to be heard. You may also write a question using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. If you are joining us by telephone, please press star nine to raise and lower your hand and star six to mute or unmute your phone. Um, and I think I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna start with the first question. Uh, Linda, could you speak a little bit about um, organic, you know, an organic garden or farm versus mm -hmm. conventional and some mm -hmm. of the things you've seen, we, you showed the picture of the two different soils and the dramatic difference uh, between them. Yes. But, cost difference and production difference maybe between those those fields? Oh, lots, lots Sorry. of differences. No, not at all. Um, on the internet, the National Organic Program, um, you can Google that and find everything you want to know about what may or may not be used in um, organic production systems. So, um, I'll give you an example that you can relate to if you live in Salem, Salem, because you pass many miles of blueberries if you're driving around Marion County. In 2009, prior to 2009, there was no insect pest of blueberries that was of economic significance. So there were some problem insects, but if you were a blueberry farmer, you didn't have to do anything about them. So in terms of, maybe not in terms of soil management, but in terms of pesticides applied, blueberries were essentially unsprayed in, in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Then in 2009, spotted wing drosophila was introduced from, uh, from wherever it's native and became a serious problem for um, blueberry, cherry, all of those. In the years since, um, researchers at Oregon State have developed um, behavioral ma materials that, that outcompete the fruit for the interests of this spotted wing drosophila. So a behavioral modification technique uh, to attract the, um, attract the flies away from the fruit. But there were some years there where insecticides, harsh chemical insecticides that had been on the way out were reintroduced. Everything that a farmer adds, whether it's fertilizer, insecticide, uh, compost, whatever, is gonna cost them money. And so the price of the crop has got to reflect all those inputs. How about another question, Cindy? So I'm glad Hans, you asked. Hans is repeatedly asking, raising his hand. Is he asking a question? I've got one beforehand. Hans. Okay, good, so, great, um, thank you. Here, here's a question. Are there plants that are good to plant, good to plan to improve plant to improve the soil of your, uh, the health of your soil? Well, so any plant is going to be good to improve the health of your soil. Um, I would say something that you like, something either you like to look at it or you like to 
eat it would be a great idea. And um, just going back to that idea of um, diverse plants, keeping the soil covered. So in the last couple of years, I have taken to keeping on hand all year long, a sack of buckwheat seed and a sack of crimson clover. Be careful with clovers because some clovers are perennials and you may not want that forever. But crimson clover, you plant it this year, you're gonna get beautiful flowers and then uh, it'll be gone next year. You can plant it again. Um, I plant crimson clover in the fall as my, well, I mean, September-ish, early October, so that I get a, a plant growing throughout the winter. Then in the spring, I have these beautiful crimson flowers. Um, crimson clover doesn't perform so well if you start planting it at this time of year. You, you could, I mean, I feel like clover seed is pretty cheap, so you could make an experiment. But definitely as the season and the soils are warming, buckwheat is great so that if you're digging something, you have exposed ground, you can sprinkle, uh, sprinkle a little buckwheat seed in the middle there and let that grow. Um, it's just a fast growing ground cover that's gonna freeze out in the fall. So while I have a lot of weeds, I try to avoid a lot of extra weeds or a lot of difficult weeds. Cindy. Sounds like a good plan. So Hans West, you have a question. You have the floor. All right, thank you. So uh, this question is about the symbiosis underground between plants and the fungi and the bacteria yep. and how quickly that develops. So just a little brief overview or, or just something you know important about that, like how quickly does your garden develop something like that and what do you do to keep it healthy? <clears throat> well, um... The way you phrase your question makes me think that you are probably aware of these um, fungi that form specific relationships with specific plants, the mycorrhizal fungi, and those are important relationships. I think only the cabbage family, broccoli, the brassicas, I think those are about the only um, plants that do not form these relationships. And so um, fungi, you know, are not so different from dogs. Some dogs are good at tricks. Some dogs are obedient, you know. Likewise with fungi, some fungi are good at make, making relationships with plant roots. And then some fungi are good at finding phosphorus and concentrating it, bringing it into the plant roots. You know, um, fungi can grow a lot faster than most plant roots. And so they spread out into the soil. The one that's good at concentrating water or the one that's good at concentrating phosphorus or any kind of plant nutrient, they will grow out bring that into the plant root and in exchange, the plant is gonna give it sugars from its um, photosynthesis. Now, Han, in, in terms of the, um, the plant root that I showed that was sloughing off, um, sloughing off um, cells, I think that that can develop fairly rapidly. If I, were, if I were investing in expensive nursery stock, like trees especially, something that's gonna be long lived, if that tree hadn't been growing on the property um, uh, you know, recently, I would probably pay extra to get a tree that had, had um, mycorrhizal, specific mycorrhizal fungi um, added to the, to the potting mix. Here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't go online and Google mycorrhizal fungi and spend a lot of money for something that is not very specific because these relationships are really specific. That was a nice question. Thanks, Han. Next. Thank you. Thank you, Hans. And Russ, um, you are up. 
Okay, uh, Linda, thank you for being here. Um, years ago, many years ago now, I was on a committee dealing with land use planning mm. with an Oregon State faculty member mm. who expressed a school of thought that agriculture is just a chemistry class and the only ro role for the dirt is to hold the plant up. Mm -hmm. um, that struck me then and it still strikes me as a, a very agribusiness friendly sort of an attitude, but is there any remaining controversy within faculties, within the USDA, within land-grant uh, faculty members uh, along those lines? I would say no. I, I work with faculty from across the college, probably in five or six different departments. And Here's the thing, Russ, these federal grants that support our salaries and support our research programs, these are highly competitive. And so while I can never know what somebody believes deep down in their heart, everybody has sure learned how to write about soil health and uh, soil microbiology and, and the diversity of uh, the ecosystem. It's hard for me to, I mean, I just can't think of anybody in the last 10 years who would have made a statement as uh, black and white as the statement you describe. However, I will certainly acknowledge that when I started graduate school in 1998, yes, Certainly, there was a, a lot of that. You're right. I think things have changed. I know things have changed. Things are changing. And thank you. I think um, we have no more questions from the audience. And so I, I do want to end with um, one before we wrap up Great. the program. And it has to do with, in the Willamette Valley, we, we have a tremendous wine industry. And much of the wines are defined by the soils they, they come from. And how, how do you see that change? If, if in 2070, we'll have the, we may have the climate of Davis, California. Uh -huh. How do you see that transition happening in soils and then the, in the wine industry, uh, what wines come from it? Are you asking me, will the... You know, Oregon is famous for Pinot Noir. Yes. There are many varietals grown in Oregon. Yes. Oregon is famous for Pinot Noir. Are you asking me, do I think that what Oregon becomes famous for as the climate changes will also change? Yes. Will Cabernet, for instance, become... Uh, I, I have no doubt about it. Um, yeah. Okay. I think that... Um, within the limits of sunlight, because, you know, the, the temperature might be rising, but our angle to the sun is not changing. So day length and all of those things are not going to change uh, because of climate change. So, um, but we will see things moving north within the limits of, of uh, available sunlight and that angle of sunlight. So right now the the US breadbasket starts, you know, like Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, and maybe southern Alberta or something like that. I think we can expect to see the breadbasket move further north into Canada. So um, even now there's research going on in the Willamette Valley for olives, for example. Um, uh, you're, you're question about or your reference to terroir, um, I do believe that someone in the barley research program is conducting, you, you know, barley breeding, beer brewing, um, all of that, those folks are highly interlinked. They all work together. They might be in different departments in buildings across the street from one another, but they are one. And so uh, I believe that there is some 
terroir of barley research going on for OSU's beer brewing program. Oh, interesting. That, interesting. that kind of tickled me. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we've got one quick question to, to uh, follow the program. And the last question was, some people say oak leaves do not make good compost. Is that true? I have a strong opinion about that, okay? Let's hear it. Okay, I think that oak leaves, all right, you're gonna make compost? Uh, well, okay, I'm sorry. Um, I am I am the compost queen of Benton County. That's been published in the Corvallis newspaper. But I also have 200 pages of compost research that I conducted for my graduate degree in the Valley Library at Oregon State. So you said the word compost and now I'm off, okay? Um, my interest in compost is to manage organic waste on the domestic scale. So we don't, we may seasonally have a yard debris pickup cart, but we don't put food waste in it. I've got a technique and some methods to manage all our food waste at home. And oak leaves are great for that, okay? Oak leaves are high in carbon. Oak leaves absorb a lot of water. Food waste is, it can be like 65 to 80% water. So I think oak leaves are great. The secret to getting oak leaves, now if you don't wanna compost food waste, that is a-okay. But the secret to getting oak leaves to break down is to run over them with a power mower so they're kind of broken up a little bit. Things can't break down until they start absorbing water. And so the beef people have about oak leaves is that they have sort of a cuticle on them that prevents water from getting in. You run over those pups with a lawnmower and they're going to have places where water can come in. You also need to think about um, nitrogen because they have so much carbon. The bacteria doing the work in a, in a compost pile, think of them as little bags, water-filled bags, and the bags are made out of protein, okay? Every protein contains nitrogen. So to allow bacteria to grow, bacteria are doing the work, you need some nitrogen um, that can come from juicy, fresh grass clippings. Now is the perfect time of year. Mow your lawn every week and put those grass clippings in with oak leaves and you're gonna be, it's gonna be breaking down. I also use um, alfalfa pellets just because they're, they're easy to buy and easy to store. I can keep them in the garage and if they're in a trash can that's mouse proof there nobody's going to eat them till I want them. Um, they require water too in order to start breaking down because they're pelletized. They're packed under pressure. A third thing you could do is um, stir oh like 2500 into a bucket of water and add that to your um, leaves. Remember that the number one reason that backyard, the number one reason that backyard compost fails to um, advance is not enough water. Wonderful question. You, you honor me by asking. Be sure and just write the word compost in an ask an expert question. It'll come to my inbox. Great. Thank you so much, Linda, for being with us today. And oh. now I'll turn it over to Sharon. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Linda. That was that was a wonderful program. Very happy you could join us today. Thank you. And remember that we have three more programs this year. Next up on April 16th, next week, we'll hear from the Willamette River Keepers. We hope you will join us. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more details on all three programs we have left and also to register. Thanks for attending today. We're glad you could come.
This audio is made with Audio Toolkit for Windows Store, downloaded for free now.